I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History. My name is Anne Foster and this is a feminist women's history comedy podcast. And we are on season two and the theme for season two has been women leaders in history and the men who whined about them. And we've started off before the year zero. We went through ancient Roman times, early um, Britain situations. Last time we did Empress Matilda and now we're just zooming a few years ahead, like 300-ish years ahead. And we're looking at a woman who was a descendant of Empress Matilda. And frankly, most Western European monarchs were a descendant of Empress Matilda in some way or another because she was one of those, or her son, Henry, was one of those people who just had so many kids and they just kind of spread far and wide all over the place. And the person, and I'm not... Like, I can't even get into the great, great aunt removed of it all. But just trust me. I double-checked this. My facts are solid. Um, Empress Matilda was a an ancestor of this person who we're going to look at today. And so this is sort of, this is another sort of person who I was like, ooh, does this, like, it fits the theme. It fits the theme well and in an interesting way. But what my hesitation of, of doing this person for the podcast was more about, um, is it inappropriate to be talking in sort of a lighthearted, comedic type way about somebody whose actions had 
um, horrific repercussions that are still being dealt with on an international scale. But then I thought, you know, I, I don't want to not talk about her. Like if we're looking at women and leadership through history, you can't, skipping over her would sort of leave a hole in the narrative. So I'm going to treat this story as I do other stories in a sort of lighthearted, whimsical way, but also uh, with with appropriate, I hope, respect to uh, the consequences of her actions. So we've looked at um, most of the women so far, really, have been sort of like, it's easy to cheer for them because there's so many gross dudes who are up against them and the women achieved great stuff and then eventually were undone by some gross dudes around them. And the thing about the women who we're doing today Isabella the first is that she actually lived for like a pretty long time and she actually wound up being successful in what she chose to be a success at doing which um spoiler includes uh genocide of a couple different groups so but the thing about her reign is that she was so successful the beginning of her story is similar to other people in the sense of like she was a woman and people like ooh, but should women be in charge like all those same issues came up she she surpassed them uh she found ways around it and she ended up so it's kind of like there's two parts to her story there's a part where you're like yes you know i want this young woman to succeed against all these odds and then there's the second part where you're like okay well once she's in power what's she gonna what's she gonna do and and that's a part of this whole situation that we haven't actually dealt with really so far in the season of this podcast is so much of what the women we've been looking at have been doing is just like trying to get a seat at the table or like the head seat at the head table. But like with the exception maybe of Cleopatra, who was in charge for quite a while and did do a lot of governing, etc. A lot of the other women just never got to really show their medal as a leader beyond being a military leader or behind the scenes leader. And the thing is... And it does still bother me when I hear people say, still today, when here's the things about like, you know, men have had their chance. Like, let's just let women be in charge. Like, women are more, people think, um, are more compassionate or are more or smarter or whatever. And it's like, there's a lot of cultural baggage around that as to why people think that. And a lot of it is that women are culturally groomed to behave in a certain way. Um, and for women to succeed, often it means sort of leaning into these sort of stereotypical roles. But also, I firmly believe, and this is a theoretical thing, and so I think it's fair to firmly believe things that you can never actually prove, is that if there were an equal amount of male and female leaders and other gender leaders, if there's an equal amount of every gender leader throughout all of human history, there'd be an equal amount of good ones and shitty ones because your gender doesn't mean you're going to be better or worse at being a leader it can affect how people treat you depending on the cultural context that you're looking at and it can depend what you're able to do depending on the cultural context you're looking at but i don't think one gender is inherently better or worse like inherently not with like if you divorce all the cultural stuff from another and so this is the first time we can really look at a woman who actually got to lead got to be very significant and what did that look like so when we get to the end and it's like how scandalous was she it's like ooh, we'll see how we feel about that by that point um, i mean we're gonna go through her story and see where she lands but personally i think she's gonna be high up significance wise not very high up scandalous wise because she was a very um 
like she was responsible for some horrific stuff, but it's not scandalous stuff. It's not like secretly poisoning your lover or whatever. So I don't know. This is this is going to be a different sort of paradigm we're looking at today, but it's an important story and it's one I want to look at. And I think it's interesting too that Isabella of Castile was sort of a generation basically one generation before Queen Elizabeth I. And Queen Elizabeth I, like if you look at all this sort of um, feminist, you know, picture books and fridge magnets and like t-shirts and things, there's there a certain group of people who are often celebrated. It's like Queen Elizabeth I and like Frida Kahlo and Harry Tubman. And um, there's certain sort of big names that are often there. Cleopatra is often involved. Isabel I isn't. And I think it's because her... Um, the repercussions of what she did really make it harder for us to be like, yes, girl, like go queen when we're still wrangling with a lot of the stuff that she was responsible for. On the other hand, um, she was a significant figure. She was, she was successful at what she set out to be successful at doing. I think she was more successful at those things than other people would have been um, of any gender. So she was a significant woman, but this isn't like a go girl sort of scenario. But it's an interesting situation. And maybe this will get all of our minds off of the fact that we're all self-isolating. And the world is, uh, seems kind of different. Well, I mean, it's obviously different. But it just seems sort of uncertain. And what what's going to come next, who knows? Um, so we'll get into it. So Isabella of Castile. We're going to do a bit of place setting because we've been doing a bunch of like England slash uh, Rome things that all sort of led into each other. And now we're going over into Castile slash Aragon slash Spain. And that's a whole different, different kingdom. So briefly, what happened? So Isabella's parents. So what, what got her to the point of her being born? What's the situation? So... A clever and ambitious young woman named Isabel of Portugal, not Isabella, but her mother Isabel, uh, wound up with a terrible husband named King Juan II of Castile. So Castile was a kingdom. There's a bunch of kingdoms all around, sort of like how England used to be all the different kingdoms. So Spain, there was like Aragon, there was Castile, nearby was Portugal. So there wasn't like one country of Spain. So Castile was a medium powerful kingdom. So Juan's first wife, Maria, had probably been poisoned to death by Juan's evil henchman because she was too old to have any more babies. The only surviving baby that Maria had was a person named um, Prince Enrique, who was aka, like even while he was alive, known as El Impotente, the impotent, um, because he grew up and he had two different wives and didn't have any children, not even illegitimate children. Um, So Juan wanted to have some new kids to be his heirs because of the usual situation of like you want your dynasty to continue on because when dynasties change there's civil war and that's just like not good for the economy or people being alive so juan married isabel so isabel of portugal which again so these are the parents of today's heroine isabella the first so juan and isabel had one son and one daughter isabella our hero and alfonso her brother when Juan died, Enrique sent his stepmother and two little half-siblings to live in poverty in a castle that was allegedly haunted by ghosts. Isabel, uh, pretty understandably fed up with all of this scheming and backstabbing and murdering, 
um, began, she uh, had a psychological break, uh, began spending her time in a fugue state, like not responding, not eating, um, screaming at ghosts in the castle, just like not doing well psychologically. And this brings us to this week's heroine, her daughter, Isabella. So Isabella was born April 22nd, 1451. She was the older child. Um, Alfonso was born three years later. And so when the same year that Alfonso was born, Juan died, the king. So although Juan had left instructions in his will that his older, useless adult son, Enrique, should take care of Isabel, Isabella and Alfonso, um, Enrique did not do this. So they went to the ghost castle, etc. Um, Enrique didn't send them as much money as they should have received, meaning that the three-person family didn't have enough food or clothes or furniture. Um, again, also the castle was potentially haunted by ghosts. So little girl Isabella lived in this situation from ages three to 11. So meaning that she and her brother Alfonso were mostly fending for themselves for several years, most of her childhood. Even in this situation, though, uh, Isabella distinguished herself by being extremely clever and intelligent and basically not giving up, um, being resilient despite living in a pretty dire underdog, unwinnable type situation. All of the members of this family drew strength from their Catholic faith. So they were like all really, really sincerely, truly religious in a really um, strict sort of way. So... And also it's important to mention because perhaps her experience of religion mixed with a deep personal trauma of growing up with her mother who had all these mental issues, um, living up, um, not having enough to live on in like a castle that was maybe haunted by ghosts. Like it was obviously a traumatic childhood. Um, and this might have something to do with her worldview later on, how she might have drawn her strength from her Catholic religion. So when she was about 11 years old, her older half-brother Enrique invited her and Alfonso to join him at the royal court and this why did he invite them after all these years after ignoring and not giving them money etc it's because after seven years of marriage Enrique's wife Juana of Portugal was having a baby and this baby would supplant both Isabella and Alfonso in the line of succession so right now because Enrique, a.k.a. El Impotente, had not had any children, he didn't have an heir at all. So when he died, um, it would go to Alfonso, his young, much younger half-brother, because of it went to boys and not girls. But he didn't want that. He wanted the crown to go to his own son. So he was feeling more kindly towards his much younger half-siblings because now they weren't threats anymore because he was going to have his own heir, or so he thought. So just... Side note on Enrique's wife, Juana of Portugal. Uh, like all the women who surrounded him, Juana had developed a reputation for being quote-unquote crazy. You know, it's the thing where like, oh my god, my ex-girlfriend was crazy, my wife was crazy, where it's like, I think probably you treated them badly-wise, every woman around you, quote-unquote crazy. So in this case, um, it mostly meant that Juana voiced her opinions, sometimes wore lower-cut dresses than the Castilian nobles preferred, and was seen to be bossy towards her husband, Enrique. So also rumor had it that she was carrying on with various lovers as well. And now based on everything we know about Enrique, namely that his personality was terrible and allegedly, or maybe not even allegedly, but he didn't have any children, hence the name El Impotente, um, his penis was maybe shaped in a way that it just like wouldn't work to father children. 
um, it seems reasonable to me that his wife might go and have a lover. Um, it's very um, Henry VIII, I think, of Enrique to always be like, well, I'm totally fine. It's just these crazy women all around me who keep not having sons and are crazy. It's them, not me, right? So the point of all this is that Juana suddenly became pregnant after seven years, and everybody pretty much agreed right away that there's no way that Enrique was possibly the father of this baby. And he might have been, who knows, but basically nobody believed that. So Juana's rumored lover was a man named Beltran de la Cueva, which is an amazing name, and he sounds super hot, and I hope he was. Um, she gave birth to a daughter, which of course everyone was just like, oh, the whole point of this is we needed a son, what are we going to do with a daughter, etc., the usual stuff. So she and Enrique named the daughter Juana after her mother, and everybody started calling the baby Juana la Beltra. La Beltraneja, meaning basically Beltran's baby. Like, they just started calling the princess um, the, by the name of the guy who everyone thought was her father, who was not the king. So if Enrique had been more of a popular king and less of a horrible human being, maybe this nickname wouldn't have stuck. But he was a terrible king and a really useless person. So even in history books, uh, baby Juana is referred to as Juana La Beltraneja. But her father was officially the king, which made her the new heir to the throne of Castile, which shoved Isabella and Alfonso down to second and third in line. Um, Enrique decided to let his half-siblings stay, and I'm sure they were pretty happy about that, to stay in a place with like enough food and clothes and not ghosts. Um, and Isabella finally got to begin getting a proper education from actual teachers and not just ghosts. So... And it was here that Isabella's extreme intelligence started to become more noticeable. She was brilliant in all of her studies, including science, math, religion, and dancing. And she was also really interested in learning about politics and scheming. So the politics of Castile and Portugal and were, there was just a lot of back and forth going on. Everybody was always trying to take over the other kingdoms. So Isabella learned about how her half-brother Enrique was not a good king. She saw what he did that was bad and kind of learned like, okay, you know, if I was monarch, maybe I'd do this different or that different. Uh, she learned about how Portugal and other kingdoms were constantly trying to attack Castile. She also learned that there was a strong faction who wanted to make her brother Alfonso the new heir instead of uh, baby Juana. Basically, Isabella laid low, paid attention, and was super smart in sort of like a Sansa Stark sort of way. Meanwhile, in the outside world, battles were fought and treaties were brokered, and eventually El Impotente agreed with the rebels that he'd name Alfonso as his heir, um, but only if his half-brother married baby Juana. So, and before, like, so this is just like a weird, incestuous child marriage situation, but then you don't have to worry about it for too long because Alfonso died under mysterious circumstances. Um... Spoiler, everybody in the story dies of mysterious circumstances because it's that sort of story. So Alfonso was now dead, meaning that there were two potential heirs left for Enrique. His half-sister, um, teenage brilliant Isabella, or his potentially illegitimate baby daughter, Juana. Both girls had their own supporters, none of whom cared about either of them as people, but mostly for what they represented. Isabella's genetic profile was seen as preferable because nobody doubted who her parents had been, whereas baby Juana was tainted by association with her mother's crazy reputation and the fact that she was maybe illegitimate and also everybody hated Enrique, who was her father. So Isabella knew she had a chance here to seize power because there was no potential male heirs anywhere 
and but she knew that she had to play her cards right. So she'd gone from being a royal princess to living in an abandoned ghost castle, and she knew how quickly luck could change, and she didn't want to move until it was exactly the right time. But um, she was also a bit of a busybody and couldn't just sit by while her half-brother ran around being a terrible king. She decided she had to intervene for the good of the country that she wanted to take control over. So what she did is, seeing as how the country of Castile was literally engaging in a civil war over who would inherit from Enrique, Isabella took it upon herself to sort things out on her own. So she sat her half-brother down at a negotiating table and forced him to make a peace treaty with her. So bear in mind, at this point, she was 17 years old. Her half-brother, Enrique, was 43, and she is the one who had all the power at that table because that is just how amazing and intense and smart and capable she was. So she proposed she got all of her supporters to stop fighting against Enrique if he named her Isabella as his heir instead of his daughter Juana. Enrique was like, sure, but you have to marry someone I choose. And Isabella was like, okay, but I can veto and you can't make me marry someone if I don't want to. And Enrique was like, okay, but you can't get married without my permission. So it's all just like loopholes, loopholes. They're both thinking of sneaky ways around all of these conditions, but they still shook hands that day and agreed to the term. Isabella got her supporters to stand down and the civil war was ended because of this 17-year-old negotiator which is amazing. It was amazing. Like she got herself named heir. So as a princess in late medieval Europe, the question of Isabella's marriage had been uh, discussed by other people since basically the day she was born. Her first betrothal had come about when she was six years old back in the ghost castle and her child fiance had been a boy around her same age named Prince Ferdinand of Aragon. One year later though, this had all gone belly up due to various infighting and shenanigans. Um, in fact, as evidence that Ferdinand's family was just the mo- just as sort of like messy and drama-filled as Isabella's, these failed marriage negotiations wound up with one of Ferdinand's relatives thrown in jail for plotting to kill his own father. So just bear in mind that every person in this whole story is like really dramatic. Like everyone's always doing the most. Like it's very much like if you watched Picard, it's like a Romulan type situation. Everyone just like feels things really intensely. Um, and there's a lot of murder going on, and yet it's just the women who get called crazy because misogyny. So shortly after 17-year-old Isabella signed the treaty with her useless king brother, the king of Portugal contacted Enrique with a proposal of marriage for Isabella. So his name, the king, is King Afonso. So he was also very schemy, and he kind of secretly worked back channels with Enrique on a double treaty that would marry 17-year-old Isabella to him, King Afonso, who's 36, and at the same time, the same treaty said that baby Juana, who is now four, so like toddler Juana, would marry Afonso's son Juan, who was 13. The end result of these proposed interfamily marriages would be that Isabella would wind up Queen of Portugal um, with Juana as the heir to both Portugal and Castile, I think. Um, Effectively, though, this arrangement would cut Isabella out of the entire line of succession for Castile. In a way, Isabella knew this was happening. She is in this situation and in many other situations, much smarter than me. So I'll trust that this was a bad deal for her. So effectively, she was like, remember when you said I could have veto power about who I would marry when we had the treaty? So she refused to agree to these terms. And because she didn't trust her brother, she also began working on her own secret plans to marry Ferdinand her fiance from when she was six years old. This part of the story is amazing. So what happens is 
there are so many stories about women who run away to get secretly married, but this is the first one that I've come across with a bride-to-be. She not only arranged for a secret sexy marriage, but she also arranged for a secret papal dispensation. Like, she secretly... She couldn't just secretly run off and elope. She had to get the Pope to give a dispensation for the marriage, and she secretly managed to do that because she is amazing. So she wasn't just secretly marrying some random noble. She's going to marry Prince Ferdinand of Aragon, and it had to be done legally so no one could have any questions about the marriage. So she was secretly exchanging messages with Ferdinand's father, the King of Aragon, and also sending secret messages with the Pope because the situation or the issue was that Isabella and Ferdinand were second cousins and they had to get permission from the Pope to get married because of the family relationship. And while she was sorting that all out secretly with the Pope, uh, Enrique was still trying to find a way to make her marry um, King Afonso of Portugal. Like he just wanted to get rid of her, but he wasn't very good at it. So if she wouldn't marry King Afonso, he tried to arrange a marriage between her and a French prince named Charles, which means that he could ship Isabella off to France and out of his way, but he didn't know what he was doing. Isabella was super smart, and here's what happened. So, because Isabella and Ferdinand couldn't straight up ask the Pope for a dispensation for the marriage, because then the news might get back to Enrique and he might try to stop them. Uh, so... But one of them knew someone who knew someone who had access to the Pope's personal personal stationery or something like that. And so they acquired a, like a, a forged letter from the previous Pope, like not the current Pope, but the previous Pope who was dead, a man who had been dead for five years. And this uh, false letter on the Pope's stationery said basically, Ferdinand can marry his second cousin or his third cousin, no big deal, if in the future this comes up. So they were good to go. So once the paperwork was all in place, Isabella was like, hey, I'm just going to go pay tribute to my dead brother and visit my mentally unstable mother back in the ghost castle. I'll be back in a bit. Bye. And she left. And everyone was like, that sounds true. So meanwhile, Ferdinand left his castle disguised as a servant. And the two of them headed out to meet each other for a secret wedding. So I love this part of the story. And, these, and I love the story because they're both just like planned really well and were both really smart and capable. So because they were so smart and their plan was so good, they met up, got married, and basically immediately Isabella, oh sorry, because these two were so smart and their plan was so good, they met up and got married immediately. So Isabella was 18, Fernand was 17, and now they were married to each other officially. So the secret wedding was effectively a declaration of war against Enrique. She'd broken the brother-sister treaty where she'd said that she would let him choose her husband, but in so doing, she had landed herself in a powerful alliance with Ferdinand's country of Aragon. Isabel and Ferdinand knew that to solidify everything, they needed to have an heir, because that would just kind of make their case even stronger for why they should be in charge of basically all of Spain. So a son would have been ideal, but their first child was a daughter who they named Isabel, because every woman in the story is called Isabel or Isabella. Enrique was super mad about the sneaky marriage, and so he amended his will to name Juana, his heir, instead of Isabella. And Juana, at this point, was 12 years old, and just like, poor her. So, remember her mother, also called Juana? Just flashback. So, Juana of Portugal, the mom, had a reputation for being quote-unquote crazy, which basically meant she didn't put up with Enrique's bullshit, so he badmouthed her, and then she took a lover, and here we all are. So eventually, Enrique had her kicked out of his royal court, and she was like, is that supposed to be a punishment? Because, like, great. And she just, like, peaced the hell out of there. She went to stay with a bishop 
who was a friend of hers, and then she fell in love with a bishop's sexy nephew, took him as her new lover, had two out-of-wedlock children with him, and was just living her best life good for her. Enrique, because of all this, had eventually declared their marriage invalid and also divorced her, which might have been good for his self-esteem, but it meant that their daughter Juana was now sort of illegitimate because if the marriage had never been valid, then she was illegitimate. So that complicated things. So back to our story. Juana is now 12 years old. So just two days after, Enrique did us all a favor by finally dying, um, but he wrote in his will that Juana would be his heir. Back to our story. So Enrique did us all a favor by finally dying, uh, but he had written in his will that Juana would be his heir instead of Isabella because he's a petty bitch who lives for drama, etc. Two days later, Isabella marched into Segovia, which is where the royal court was, and she pulled a coup. Like, uh, she just marched in uh, a coup. Like, she was just here to usurp things, and she did it via a parade. So she was 23 years old at this time, and she literally paraded in a procession down the street wearing jewels and carrying a sword and basically daring anyone to stop her from doing this. No woman had ever taken over anything like this ever and she was so impressive the nobles basically just let her become queen because she was so terrifying and incredible like she was grand marshal of her own coup parade and she just kind of took over despite what the king's will had said and part of her confidence here comes from her belief that she was god's choice to be in charge of castile and so that sort of helped soothe the hurt feelings of all the misogynists around her who wouldn't normally support a woman in power but when the options were a 23-year-old parade-holding political genius versus her 12-year-old possibly illegitimate half-niece, Isabella, seemed like the better of two options, and she just took over anyway, so like, let's just let her. So to complicate, or maybe simplify, things, Juana, the mom, Juana of Portugal died at around this time too, um, leaving her daughter, Juana, in her own sort of ghost castle underdog scenario. But younger Juana, still had lots of powerful supporters, like the entire Portuguese royal family, including a man you might remember from a few minutes ago, from the same story, King Afonso, the one who had wanted to marry Isabella in the first place, but she didn't. So his proposal to marry Isabella hadn't worked out, and he now had his sights set on marrying Juana, and through her, taking over Castile. So... Just five months after Isabella had been crowned queen, Afonso and his troops marched from Portugal into Castile, and he seemingly picked up 12-year-old Juana and married her, and that just happened. Um, so this was another marriage that was also marriage slash act of war. And for the next four years, there was a war called the War of the Castilian Succession. On one side was Juana and Alfonso, on the other side was Isabella and Ferdinand. Lives were lost, battles were fought, four years pass, and now it's 1476, and it's the Battle of Toro, where the whole war was ended when Ferdinand invented public relations stunts. So here's the thing. Neither side was sure who had won the Battle of Toro. Like, they fought the battle, everyone was just, like, tired and exhausted, a bunch of people were dead, and everyone was just like, wait, who just won? So Afonso's troops went back, like, I guess we won? And Ferdinand went around spreading fake news that he had won in a huge victory. And his fake news spread to some of Afonso's allies who were like, oh, I guess we actually lost. Let's go home now to Portugal or whatever. And so many of Afonso's troops mistakenly left because of these rumors that Ferdinand's side ended up actually winning. So it was a victory for mind games and strategy. And it wound up with Juana and Afonso heading back to Portugal where they stayed basically for the time being. 
Back on the home front, Isabella was busy with a parallel Pierre stunt. In front of witnesses, she had her daughter Isabella, her daughter Isabel, officially declared to be the heir to the crown of Castile. So not only was Isabella herself the queen, by naming her daughter her heir, she was basically swearing herself in as queen at the same time. So both Isabel and Ferdinand were just really good at this sort of thing, using like mind games and just like confidence to just will themselves into the positions they wanted to be in and they were just so like self-assured about it everyone was like that seems true i guess that's what happened he won that battle she's the queen here we are okay moving on so the team up wasn't just ferdinand being a warrior and isabella being a political mastermind because isabella was also a literal warrior queen slash continues to be a negotiating genius for instance Later that same year, while Ferdinand was off fighting, like, whoever, other enemies, a rebellion broke out against against the pair of them. And Isabella was like, well, I'm just going to go and quash this. And all of her male advisors were like, but what if you just stayed home and were, did, like, woman things, like sewing and raising your baby daughter? And she was like, so I can't hear you. I'm busy running off on a horse to single-handedly negotiate this all. And that's what she did. So she just negotiated with the rebels. The rebels were like, oh, you know what? We're not against you anymore. We support you. End of rebellion. Like she'd been negotiating peace treaties since she was a teenager and could outsmart anyone. Like her mediation skills was just like amazing. So she was a political mastermind, had married a man who seemed to be her true equal in terms of scheming and ambition, had given birth to a daughter and heir, had driven her tween half niece back to Portugal. What more was left to solidify her place as queen? Well, basically, because of patriarchy and misogyny, she still needed to have a son. Like, having a woman queen who who had a daughter was just, like, not quite enough for everyone to be, like, super comfortable with the whole situation. But, lo and behold, in 1478, she gave birth to a son who was named Juan, Prince of Astorius. With this baby boy now supplanting Isabel as heir, there was really no argument to be made about why she shouldn't be in charge of literally everything. She had the pedigree, she had the son, she had the record of, of military victories, she had charisma and intelligence, and she was just getting started. So what happens next? So this is where she stops being underdog. This is where she's like, we're getting into like, and now she's in charge of stuff. And what's that going to look like? Spoiler, genocide. So Isabella and Ferdinand at this point are officially co-monarchs of both the huge kingdom of Castile and the smaller but important Aragon. They were truly an equal pairing. So Isabella was given the same level of respect and responsibility as her husband. It wasn't a thing where it's like, that's the king and that's his wife, we'll call her the queen. They were like co-monarchs. And this was the first time in Western history that a woman actively ruled a country. This was before Elizabeth I. This was before Catherine the Great. This was 300 years after Matilda. There had been women who had ruled, like, kingdoms, or, like, they'd been duchesses. Women had been in charge of stuff, but she was, like, actively a reigning monarch. So she and Ferdinand were both reigning. It wasn't just the husband of or the wife of. So when Isabella, 23 years old and small, she's, like, a small, like, person with sort of, like, red goldish hair, when she paraded down the street with a giant sword and declared herself queen, everyone was kind of like, okay. But by the middle of her 30-year reign, those same people were, like, Isabella is the greatest human being the world has ever seen, at least in the past 500 years. She is, we worship her, basically. So we're going to look now at what made her, what she was like as a queen, and what made her such a significant figure. So, first of all, you remember when she was hanging around that castle and just paying attention to stuff and seeing, like, oh, this is why 
my half brother is like a terrible king and here's what I would do differently. So she started implementing the stuff she figured out during her time Sansa Starking it. So she was able to turn around Castile's finances through her careful and meticulous leadership. The past two kings, so Enrique and also her father who had been the puppet of his evil pal who is this guy called Del Luna. Her father had been like a shitty king. Her half-brother had been a shitty king. Um, they'd been like literally awful at the job. She inherited a country that was in massive amounts of debt due to their financial mismanagement, um, including Enrique's idiotic decision to, or his short-sighted decision to increase the country's money by just like making more coins. That never works. That, that never works. Like, that never works. So basically, Isabel had numerous ideas about how to salvage this particular situation like for instance putting an end to excess coin manufacturing and also forcing nobles to pay off their debts to the crown so the ongoing war between castile and portugal had also been putting too much pressure on the country's budget so she used her brilliant strategic mind to put an end to this war with a number of peace treaties among the terms of these treaties was portugal's agreement that juana remember her i feel so badly for her she just like so Juana would be confined to a convent for the rest of her life and forced to do lots of compulsory prayers, which is like a weirdly specific punishment, but it's kind of a hint at the way that Isabella would sort of use piety and religion as a, sort of a punishment in other things she would do. So another terrible thing about the reigns of Enrique and their father was that criminals had never really been tracked down or punished in any sort of organized manner. And this kind of made sense because the country's laws had never actually been written down. So Isabella hired a scholar to write out an eight-volume set of all of the laws. She saw herself as the divinely appointed arbiter of all that was good and holy. So again, like, she's so smart. She's so capable. And she, if you asked her, she would be like, well, this is because God put me here. Like, I'm a brilliant genius because of God. And so that's part of where her confidence came from. And that's part of where, like, she wasn't phased by men doubting her. But that's also why a lot of men wouldn't doubt her because they were like, well, God put her here. Like, okay. So she's determined to have a zero tolerance policy against criminality, especially rape and sexual crimes. More rapists were tried and convicted during her reign than ever before. But important note, Isabella considered homosexual acts in the same league of unforgivable criminality as she did rape. And the punishment for men convicted of sodomy was to be castrated and hanged, which was also the punishment for heterosexual rapists. Is that so basically consensual sodomy? was given the same punishment as unconsensual sexual activity between anyone. So because you can't have medieval Spanish law without medieval Spanish order, Isabella also invented the concept of a state-sanctioned police department. Up to this point, justice had been mostly meted out by ad hoc gangs of men called brotherhoods or hermandads. Hermanidads. So Isabella called her new royally appointed squad La Santa Hermandad, the Holy Brotherhood. Her predecessors had been largely under the thumb of powerful aristocrats who got, who themselves gave and accepted bribes for their own self-interest, and they weren't really there for the country, they were just there for their own personal gain. Isabella and Ferdinand put an end to this whole situation by positioning themselves as absolute monarchs. Now, obviously being a dictator isn't ideal most of the time. All of the time? I'm going to say most of the time. But this was one situation where... It was kind of their only option. The country's allegiances had been scattered, and the new monarchs were determined to coalesce all support behind them. So this is what was best for them, but in several ways, it was also kind of best for the country. So this meant they removed all power from the nobles, consolidating it all for themselves. 
Isabella had the nobles move from active participants in government to more like audience members uh, and replace them with actual administrative staff, like lawyers who would perform the actual tasks of running the country. So it was sort of like really modernizing things in a really um, effective way. So they got a stronghold over the country just by having a vision and a plan and being a really good team together. The pair of them, especially Isabella, also wound up being really effective in other ways, but the first steps and sort of the necessary first steps were to take a struggling country and make it over into something actually productive. So in a sort of triage way, once they gathered all control into their own hands and established law and order, they were able to move on to other stuff, um, such as to unify the country under a single religion. So... Um, Isabella and Ferdinand were so pious that the Pope bestowed upon them the name the Catholic Monarchs, which is still the way that people refer to them now sometimes. So it should come as no surprise that the uh, religion they want everyone to have was Catholicism. So this wasn't just conversion for, like, to get the numbers up or whatever. Like, Isabella truly saw herself as God's hand on earth. Like, God had put her there. Like, this is her job is to make everyone, like, save everyone. Or whatever so her role was as the savior to all non-catholics so at the time that she took over spain was populated not by only catholics but there's also a lot of muslims and the largest concentration of jewish people of anywhere in europe at that time uh so did this mean she ran around like a missionary converting people no uh what it meant is that she created policies forcing non-catholics to convert and then she changed her mind and later decreed that all non-catholics were to be expelled from spain um, without their money or possessions. And their money or possessions were then given to Isabel and Ferdinand, which helped out financially. So they were all expelled. Um, it was a horrifying time for Jews and Muslims in Spain. And there isn't this podcast's thesis. There's not really time to get into all the details of it. But I'll put some article links in the show notes to really get into how horrendous this whole thing was and the effect it had on world history. But basically it was genocidal. So, simultaneous to the expulsion of Jews and Muslims, Isabel and Ferdinand were also hard at work conquering the remaining Muslim strongholds in their area, which were run by a dynasty called the Nasrid dynasty. Isabella was actively involved with the multi-year campaign, because again, she had this military background, um, she'd military victories before, so she helped to plan campaigns and accompany troops near the field of battle, using the newly increased treasury of money that they got from um, genocide reasons. She amassed a larger arsenal of weapons than any previous monarch had ever acquired, including cannons strong enough to destroy a castle walls. Her tactics and arsenal forced all armies in Europe to change their battle strategies. Like this is like again, we're just I'm just presenting some facts here. And the fact is like she was a really competent leader and some of her actions were horrific and everyone around her kinda had to change their strategies against her because she was so effective. Uh, the final stronghold of the Nasrid Empire was Granada, which finally surrendered to the Catholic monarchs in 1492. Isabella and Ferdinand entered the city and were ceremonial pre ceremonially presented with the keys to the city. And so then they set out converting not only the people, but the place itself. They reconsecrated the primary mosque into a Catholic church, for instance. Their success in defeating Muslim expansion forever altered the global balance of power. Like, forever, internationally. So at this point, it had been, like... The global balance of power, like Eastern areas, countries, kingdoms, had been more powerful. And then because of her actions, the West suddenly became more powerful. 
So Spain was becoming the first Western superpower, paving the way for the domination of France and then England and then some of the colonies on the world stage. And we're still dealing with that world order today. Um, So Isabel and Ferdinand had achieved massive success in their plans to consolidate the various parts of Spain into a single empire with themselves as supreme rulers. Rather than spreading themselves to the east, um, like to like spreading Spain more east, Isabella, Isabella's interest was piqued by a persistent Italian adventurer who kept visiting. Um, his name is Cristofa Corombo, or his anglicized name is better known as Christopher Columbus. And he was just this guy who was like, hey, like I want to go to the west. I think there might be stuff there. And she was finally like, ugh, fine. So he approached the Catholic monarchs numerous times for financial support for his goal to voyage across the Atlantic to find new trade routes to the Indies. But um, they kept saying no. He only he so he kept like dropping his price of how much he needed, and finally it was cheap enough that Isabella found it acceptable. And so she reappropriated the money seized from the expelled Jewish people and Muslims to fund this trip. So okay, so Christopher Columbus, his actions in North America are fairly well known. Um, and in case you weren't sure how truly awful he was and the things he perpetrated were so awful, um, I'll put some more links to a few things in the show notes as well, because again, that's a whole other topic, but worth reading about for sure. I don't feel personally capable of speaking to it in the, to the extent it needs to be spoken about, but I will put some links in the show notes. So what's one thing that's interesting about this whole scenario is that Isabella was never comfortable with the idea of enslaving or mistreating the indigenous people of the Americas. This was partially because she viewed Christopher Columbus's colonies as subsidiaries of Castile, which made the indigenous people, she thought of them as Castilian subjects, and she was their monarch. And the law of the land was that Castilian subjects could not be enslaved. Furthermore, she was keen to convert the indigenous people to Catholicism, and to her, Catholics could also not be enslaved. Um, but also, like, note to her, she wasn't like a um, civil rights. Um, to her, black people captured during her conquest on the African continent could be enslaved. It's just like Castilian subjects and Catholics couldn't be enslaved. Um, but her desire to convert people to Catholicism was not limited to the indigenous people of the Americas. They were still consistently obsessed with ensuring that every single person living in Spain practiced the same religion they did to the point that they began even mistrusting people who claim to be Catholic. Because, like, it makes sense to me if you're there and everyone's just, are you Catholic? Like, you just start being like, yeah, I'm Catholic. Like, but Isabel and Ferdinand were like, but are they? Are they Catholic enough? So they wanted to build a country that was entirely Catholics and all of whom fully supported them. So like a full-on dictatorship situation. And so that's why they founded a royal inquisition, a.k.a. the Spanish Inquisition, They weren't the first people to do something like this, but they were among the most successful at it, by which I mean they captured and killed more um, people than most other Inquisitions did. I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, Just this, this is what I was talking about. Like at first it's like easy to cheer for this person and now she's actually getting a lot of stuff done and it's just like the global implications of what she did are quite extreme. Um, So... Isabella's religious fervor was not just limited to just her subjects. She applied similar high standards to her children. So, um, including some problematic slash abusive methods. Um, And so it is in her home life that Isabella found herself, like she was so savvy and so competent and so ruthless and so successful at her 
political stuff, but it was at her home life where um, she wasn't able to control things quite as much because guess what? Her children inherited her strong emotions and strong force of personality. So Isabel and Ferdinand had five children. Uh, her oldest daughter was also called Isabel. Um, her son Juan, Prince of Asturias, Juana of Castile, and Maria of Aragon, and Catherine of Aragon. Yes, that's right. The first wife of Henry VIII was the youngest child of Isabella of Castile, which puts her whole thing in context too, I think, in terms of her strong force of personality. So Isabella ensured that all of her children were provided with extensive education. Um, She hired humanists as tutors. So education was important to her, even for girls, which um, her daughter, Catherine of Aragon, um, would also felt was really important to the point so that Isabella's granddaughter, Mary I of England, was also very well educated as well. It was not the standard, it had not been standard for children to be educated to this extent, especially not girls, but Isabella presented herself as a role model to her daughters in other ways, um, by bringing them with her when she accompanied troops into battle, so it was really like, you know, women can do anything, asterisk, all the caveats I've already said. But like, so she, she was raising her daughters in a way that a lot of women were not being raised at the time, and that affected her daughters' lives, so... Part of the reason why she was so intent on getting them really well educated was because she herself, if you recall, hadn't received much schooling in her childhood. Like until she was age 11, she was in the ghost castle, um, not really getting a lot of education. So it was really important for her to her that her children were all taught basically everything possible. So languages, science, history, politics, archery, dancing, music. Uh, Juan, the only son, was trained in how to become the new king, while the girls learned skills about how to be a wife and mother alongside their other studies. Isabella and Ferdinand ensured that their family would be impervious to criticism um, by training the children to behave so perfectly and so catholicly. Um, Each of the children was recorded as being both really um, accomplished, really intelligent, and also really gorgeous, which is like they were. If you look at the portraits, like they have this gorgeous, like red blonde hair, the same as their mother, some of them. Uh, The girls all seem to have inherited many of the personality traits of their mother as they all wound up expressing um, very stubborn personalities alongside uh, really resiliency and tenacity. Of all the children, Isabella clashed the most with her daughter Juana, perhaps because these two were more alike than the others, which is like, isn't that how it always is with mothers and daughters? And we're going to learn more about Juana perhaps next week. We'll see. One final part of Isabel and Ferdinand's strategy for complete domination of Spain slash the Western world was to connect their dynasty with royal families in other countries. So they arranged the best possible matches for each of their children. Isabel was shipped off to marry the Portuguese king, who don't worry, not Afonso. He's not the king anymore. Um, While Juan and Juana were each married off to a Habsburg royal. Isabel's husband died suddenly at a very young age, after which Isabel begged to be allowed to remain unmarried and to live life as a nun, because this whole family was, like, really Catholic. But Isabel was needed to help firm up another, this same alliance with Portugal, and so Isabella sent her daughter Isabel back to marry the new Portuguese king. Isabel died in childbirth a year later, and her baby son passed away shortly after that as well. At around this time as well, Juan, the only son in the family, and Isabella had always favored him, referring to him as her angel, also died. So this meant, much to Isabella's grief and frustration, 
if you're going chronologically, that her least favorite daughter, Juana, was suddenly and unexpectedly heir to the thrones of Castile and Aragon, because that was it. Um, her youngest daughters, so Juana was the oldest daughter. There's two other sisters, Maria and Catherine. So Maria and Catherine were sent off for their own politically advantageous marriages. Maria was to be the second wife to her sister Isabel's um, widower, the king of Portugal, which is just like, blah. So like Isabel married the king of Portugal who dies. Then she married the new king of Portugal. Then she died. Then that second king of Portugal married her sister Maria, which is just like, blah. So, blah. Um, and Catherine was sent off to marry Arthur, the crown prince of England. This did not go particularly easily for Catherine, which is what, um, that's the whole Henry VIII situation. And we'll talk about that some other time. But basically, the children were married off to other countries that Spain wanted to ally with. But um, these deaths in quick succession, Isabel, Isabel's baby son, and then Juan, um, combined with the heartbreak of having all of her children almost simultaneously move away to other countries where she'd never see them again, severely affected Isabella's health, including her mental health. Um, remember, she grew up with the trauma and her mother had some psychological problems. Like, there's some undealt with trauma in her life, kind of clearly. So, as she had when she was a girl in the ghost castle, Isabella turned to prayer and fasting for strength, but this weakened her constitution because she wasn't eating enough. She slowly succumbed to the effects of dropsy, which I think is an oldie time word for... It's basically swelling... Um, I think it has something to do with um, heart conditions. Anyway, just like she wasn't eating. She's not doing well. It was the 15th century. Things weren't great. But she kept enough wits about her to be able to compose her will. So the document is part of advice and instruction to Ferdinand. And Ferdinand would continue on being the solo monarch for another 12 years. And it's also instructions for their successors. So she... Her will is sort of like a manifesto almost. So she charges her successors to remain vigilant against the devil and his minions, which included the Muslim and Jewish people, as well as to continue to work to conquer the African continent and to continue the Inquisition. She's just like, this is what's important to me. She also noted in her will her desire for the indigenous people of the American colonies to be treated fairly and not to be abused. And Isabella I died aged 53. Um at the Medina del Campo Royal Palace, where she had been living bedridden for her final months. This was in 1504. Her tomb is in Granada, the site of one of her greatest military and political victories. Um, when Ferdinand died, he was buried next to her. And when their daughter Juana died 55 years later, uh, she was buried there as well, as well as was, oh, sorry, Juana, her daughter Juana, not Juana the Portugal stuck in the convent having to do prayers all the time person um and isabel's dead baby son miguel was also buried there so a little family tomb situation so just to like wrap up her story before we get into the whole scoring situation is that isabel of castile her life her reign forever changed the course of world history like other people in the same place in the same time might have done some of the same stuff but i don't know if anyone could have accomplished as much as she did again i'm not calling the things she did good i'm just saying that they were accomplishments for her, for what she wanted to do. 
to have happen. Uh, she founded the first cross-Atlantic colonial empire, creating a template that was used later by both the French and the English. Her successes in the wars against Muslim areas paved the way for Christianity to become the dominant religion through most of Western Europe. She was also the first European woman to be recognized as a monarch in her own right, uh, changing the word queen to mean woman who rules rather than just the woman married to the king. There are echoes of her story in the character arc of Daenerys Targaryen on Game of Thrones, um, including the fact that Daenerys was also um, narcissistic and became a dictator and killed a lot of people. But basically, like Isabella, Daenerys went from a forgotten sideline young woman to an ambitious would-be queen to a seemingly power-mad colonizer. Isabella's legacy is complex and impossible to label as entirely positive or entirely negative. I mean, nothing is really... It's hard to find something that you can say is entirely positive or entirely negative. Um, but so I'm just trying to present like, here's the facts, like here's what she did. And some of it was impressive. Some of it is horrendous. All of it is significant and truly changed world history. So hers is one of the most consequential and important reigns in European history. And it's ridiculous. But now we're going to score her on our Scandalicious scale, which... I mean, it's hard for me to quantify the purpose of the Scandalicious scale, but it's mostly just, it's a nice way to wrap up each episode. And it's a way to sort of measure the different women who are talking about, um, not saying who is better than who, or but just more kind of like, where do they all stack up if we're putting them on a list and measuring them in these various different ways. So the first category, oh, my cat is here being like real friendly with her claws. I don't know, Isabella had... I don't think people had his pets and all been brainwashed by enzymes and cat poo to worship. Anyway, um, so the first category is scandaliciousness, and I'm just giving her a zero. A zero! I, have I ever given everyone a zero? I don't. I don't think I've ever given someone a zero in scandaliciousness, but she's... I feel like the ghost of Isabel of Castile would come and, like, strike me down if I suggested anything about her life was scandalous. You know what? No. I'm going to give her a two. A two for scandalousness because of the whole running away, secretly marrying situation. Um, scheminess. Now, for a lot of the women we've been looking at, this is meant sort of like behind the scenes. How did they, you know, orchestrate a murder or whatever? But for Isabel, I think it's more just like planning. Did she come up with plans? Were those plans effective? And I think I kind of need to give her... Her plans were good. She had a plan to take over um, all of Castile, which she did. Um, she had a plan to also have Aragon taken over by Mary Ferdinand, which she did. Um, she had numerous military plans. I think her scheminess is, I mean, even outside of the like genocide of it all, she came up with plans. The plans went well for her. 10 for scheminess, I think. Significance, I think, also has to be a 10. I would give her like 10 plus if I could, because the significance of her reign, like... Even the people who we have higher up on the scandalous scale, like Agrippina, Matilda, like they, even Cleopatra, like they did stuff that mattered a lot at the time. But Isabella of Castile is the first person who we've looked at who I think what she did literally changed world history. Like we're still dealing with the effects of um, colonizing of Africa and of the Americas and what happened with um, Jewish people and Muslims in Spain and like the East versus the West. Like other people might have been monarchs at the same time. She happened to be the person that was there and she with her scheminess like just had these plans that just 
did what she wanted them to. So significance is 10. Um, and then this one is, so the sexism bonus. I usually think to myself, like, it could never be less than five because everybody is always dealing with sexism. Um, once she became queen, and I think she was protected or sort of inoculated from a lot of criticism, both by being married to Ferdinand. So there was a man that people could think like, well, she's in charge, but also there's a man there. So it's like not quite so threatening to people. But the fact that she, like the sexism that got in the way of her not being named Enrique's heir to begin with, um, when her, her brother was and the fact she had to kind of fight to take over, but then she's fighting against a different woman slash girl. I'm, I'm going to stick to my guns. I'm going to give her a five because I feel like Show me a person who hasn't had at least a 5 out of 10 in sexism effect in their life. So that brings her total up to 27, which is kind of right in the middle, which makes sense to me because this is a podcast where like we prioritize scheminess and scandalousness and things like that. And so the people who are at the top are the people who did scandalous type things combined with some significance type things. And Isabel of Castile is significant. But she's not like, again, this is where you're not, there's not a lot of, um, it's not like, there's not a lot of sexy movies and historical novels about like, ooh, Isabella Castile and like all the schemes she did. She was like a military leader and she's an effective military leader, but not, not the sort of person that's going to get to the top based on what we're scoring on here on Vulgar History. So again, I'm going to put like a whole lot of links in the show notes for this because there's a lot of important context that I breezed over pretty quickly in the aim of giving you a whole big picture view of her life from beginning to end and but that context is really crucial to glean and to really appreciate the effect that this woman had on all of world history i mean she's one of the most significant not just women but like people of any gender to have ever lived like just this stuff and that's partially like she could have been the same personality the same person with the same skills and in a different situation and she wouldn't have done all these things it's like she was it was like a combination of who she was her skills um and just the situation she was in and her ability to make the best of it um and to win people over to her side so so yeah this is vulgar history my name is ann foster um i have a couple so couple of little links you can look at. First of all, um, if you want to find more of my writing, including effectively a transcript of this podcast, just the two essays I've written before about Isabel of Castile, that's at annfosterwriter.com. Um, this podcast, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Vulgar History Pod on Instagram, Vulgar History on Twitter. If you want to email me, uh, you can reach us at vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. If you want to support this podcast, um, I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Writer. I've also got some merch, um, including from last week's episode, a shirt that I find the most hilarious thing in the world. It's just like a plain white shirt. And then it says in sort of oldie time font, like Empress Matilda in the snow because of how Last time I talked about how she camouflaged all in white and was hidden in the snow. You can get that image on like a mug and a bag and all kinds of different hilarious stuff. That's at teespring.com slash stores slash vulgar history. Um, if you're interested in a book that I have to recommend to you, there's a book called Isabella the Warrior Queen by Kirsten Downey that came out in 2015 that I think gives a really good sort of balanced 
appraisal of her and her life. There's also a book called Isabella of Castile, Europe's First Great Queen by Giles Tremlett, which also, both of them really do, I think, a fine job of balancing the Isabella, kind of the cool parts of her story with kind of the horrific effects of the things she did without kind of like saying she was a bad person or she was a good person. It's just kind of like, here's some facts and here's some information. So both of those books I would recommend definitely. Um, and also if you go to to the website bookshop.org, I have an ongoing book list there. I think it's just called, the book list is if you go to, again, it'll be in the show note links, but it's bookshop.org slash lists slash vulgar history recommends with dashes in between vulgar history and recommends um and that's where you can find a lot of the books i've been reading um for researching for all the different podcast episodes and bookshop.org is a lovely site that helps support independent bookstores you can sort of tell them who's your local store and then the purchases you make can go to help support them as well um and then also if you are interested in audiobooks and that sort of thing um if you're considering a subscription to audible um if you go to audibletrial.com slash vulgar history then you can get a, a free trial and some of that money brings back to help support this little podcast project. So I hope you're all keeping well. Um, wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Stay inside. And I'll talk to you next time. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.